Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, Edward. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, Edward, when we were talking, you told me you're in New York City, and I'm calling all the way from Singapore. So, since that New York was the epicenter of the COVID crisis, have things recovered since then? Things feel pretty back to normal here in New York. Um, There are no more mask mandates. That's nice. Uh, No one's really wearing masks on the subways anymore. Yeah. Uh, Uber is the only company that requires masks when you get in one of the cars, but even those drivers, most of them aren't wearing masks. So those costumed characters like Spider-Man and Tinkerbell, we can find them in Times Square now? Absolutely. Times Square is back. Times Square is back. Well, I need to make a trip up there. I've not been to New York since 2019, I think it was. Oh, my goodness. I think it was it was very unpleasant for a long time. But, um, you know, the the restaurants are back Uh, in COVID. They uh, put chairs and tables out in the streets. All those are still here. Nice. And, uh, and of course, rents are back as well. So it's still <laughs> yes, one of the yes. most expensive places in the world to live. I read some of that because a lot of people were forced to live together during COVID. They then realized they don't want to ever be with this person for the rest of their lives. And <laughs> it's hard to find a single or a studio apartment in New York. Is that true? Have you seen any anecdotal evidence to that effect? It's impossible. Yes. Every so often I get, I wonder if I'm tired of my apartment. Yeah. And I, I look around in... Um, in the classifieds or in Craigslist, and it's impossible. If I were to get my same apartment again, I'd have to pay $2,000 more. Wow, $2,000 more. Yes. That is incredible. Well, speaking about apartments, I was talking to one of the board members of Zillow yesterday, and they were talking through the challenges they face in businesses. And then this morning, I was talking to an executive from Delta. And what I'm seeing is, all of these companies are again posting numbers or they will soon start posting numbers that mirrored the pre-COVID revenue and profits. So what I want to know is, is this because of better leadership or do you think it's just because there's a pent-up demand out there? I would say it's mostly pent-up demand. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's some crazy new leadership tactics that have been developed in a COVID bunker somewhere. You know, I think some companies have gotten the message that they need to lead better and manage better. Yeah. And I think the great resignation has had a lot to do with that. Um, Employees have turned the tables on managers. And in the last round of reviews, it was the managers who were being um, measured in their performance rather than the employees. So some companies have gotten the message. um, But I would say most of the recovery we're seeing right now is just pent up demand. People just are really excited to get out and travel again and visit new places and buy new things. So in a manner of speaking, leaders were tested during COVID in terms of how to respond to COVID, but in terms of being able to grow their business, motivate employees and so on, they're getting a lift from the post-COVID bump. There's a little bit of a post-COVID bump, absolutely. And we're also seeing that what some managers learned during 
the last couple of years is that they have to take employee mental health and well-being much more seriously. So we're seeing a huge investment in, in offsites, in team building, in coaching, right? Our business has never been better as well. And I think that's because people, leaders are realizing that the emotional integrity of their organization has as much to do with the bottom line as the quality of their products. So let's talk more about um, mental health because it's a big topic. When I was a senior partner in consulting, if you talked about this, it could derail your career. It was seen as a sign of weakness. Yeah. But today, companies are embracing it. So the question is, what are they doing exactly to address mental health issues? I see it everywhere, but what are they doing? What are the best practices? A lot of the best practices involve, well, one, as you just said, uh, demystifying talking about mm-hmm. mental health. Um, in a lot of our work and in a book we just uh, wrote recently, it's all about having more connected and honest conversations in the workplace. I think for decades, um, you know, we operated under this assumption that everyone had to have, quote, executive presence. They had to look. Yes, perfect, I remember that. Right. Yeah. We had to um, dress well. We had to have that firm handshake. We couldn't let them see us sweat. Remember that term as Wish well. Chanel number five and, and all kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and today, um, employees want to be able to talk about what's actually going on. That would, that's what makes them feel safe. That's what makes them feel seen and heard. And ultimately, it's what makes them feel committed and creative. So the leaders and the organizations that are able to permit and encourage these conversations to happen, that's one of the best practices we're seeing. Um, as well, we're also seeing availability for mental health treatments, um, therapy, access to therapy as a benefit, access to coaching as a benefit. We're seeing all of these on the rise. And do you feel this is, there's a two parts to this question. I'm going to break it up for you. I'll do the first one and then I'll do the second one. I've been around long enough and I'm sure you've been around long enough to remember when the big focus in the workplace was gender equity and gender inclusiveness, getting women involved. Mm -hmm. And then the shift was towards diversity all of them valid and all of them are unfinished. And now the shift seems to have gone towards mental health. Is it just the next big thing or is this real? Um, I like to think of this as more like steps on the same path. And that path is leading towards employees feeling safe, included and creative because we are considering gender inclusivity. We're, We're considering racial inclusivity. We're considering... Um, sexual orientation inclusivity. And now we're also considering conversations about mental health as being common in the workplace. Yes, And I think that employees have realized that hiding how they're feeling and hiding who they are, are both very dangerous and very damaging. It doesn't make anyone feel committed to a workplace if they feel like they can't be themselves. And this there, there's this myriad of ways we think about diversity now and all of them are valid and all of them I think are leading companies to having even better bottom line results. I like the way you phrase it. I haven't heard anyone phrase leadership that way. You need to find a way for employees not to hide themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense because at a certain point, you always migrate to your identity. You try to fight it, but if this is who you are, this is who you want to be all the time. 
Right, right. You want your employees to be expending their energy being creative, uh, being committed to making a sale, being committed to making customers feel good. Why should they be spending half their energy hiding who they really are? So this is interesting because often when we talk about COVID, we talk about the stress of working from home, but it seems as if Uh there were all these stresses before COVID. It's just that COVID has forced us to talk about mental health. That's right. Absolutely. And COVID made us talk about mental health because it became a much more acute problem and a much more acute conversation, right? Uh, we, for the first time, we had people unable to leave their apartments for weeks or months on end. Yes. Uh, cooped up with their loved ones or unloved ones by the end of it. <laughs> cooped up with their, with their kids and expected to work ungodly hours, right? Uh, we used to be able to commute to the office, work eight to 10 hours, commute home, and have this separation between our work life and our home life. And for the last two and a half years, there's been no separation for most people. It's been one continuous stream of work from home. And now we see employees saying enough is enough. So they want to change the conversation. They want to talk about work-life balance. They want to talk about uh, what hybrid work really looks like. Uh, They want to talk about burnout. They want to talk about mental health. And smart employers are listening. Yes. So when you talk about leadership today, has leadership changed before COVID? What has changed in leadership with all these dimensions a leader now needs to take into consideration? I think the most important thing that's changed is... um, Employers used to think, some employers used to think that employees should feel lucky for having a job here, right? Yes, that's That true. the employers were giving the employee something, an opportunity, a career. That story has changed quite dramatically, uh, especially in, in uh, places where, and in industries where recruitment and hiring has become almost impossible. Yes. You know, tech jobs, engineering jobs. Um, a lot of the big tech companies have had real hard time hiring in the last couple of months, um, coming on to a year year plus now, because employees have, have realized we actually have a lot more power in this conversation than- well, Karl ever- Marx would be so happy to hear that. Labor has finally <laughs> triumphed over capitalism. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? How employees, it, it, took, it took a global pandemic Exactly. For, uh, for workers to rise up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. What you're saying is true. You know, it's a good way of articulating it. There seems to be, I don't know how true it is, a balance of power. At least there's a perception in a shift in the balance of power. Yeah. Yeah. Now that all might change. Um, I think uh, all of these systems and dynamics are cyclic uh, or cyclical. Yes. We are starting to see, you know, the... Uh, conversations about a potential global recession, right? Yeah. Some of the larger tech companies have frozen hiring. So it's the early whispers of uh, a potential change in the, in the tides again. But for now, employees still have, have a lot of the power in those conversations. I think in April, it was a uh, record month of employees who left their jobs. 4.4 million people in the United States left their jobs. Voluntarily. So it's not as if 
leaders have become more benevolent after COVID, it's because of the shift in the power structure that they're forced to change the way they lead. Is that a good way of summarizing? I would say they realize they have to become more more benevolent. Um, I, I think they realize that they were taking employees for granted. I think they realize that um, some of the expectations around performance and around um, some companies have been operating at, in wartime mode for years on end. Yes. Um, stressing people out, burning people out. I think they realize that um, balance is part of uh, the employee retention strategy. This reminds me of um, the period before World War II when companies in the United States primarily acted as if consumers should be grateful for the fact that companies made them new stuff. And after World War II, companies realized, you know what, we've got to fight for consumers. We have to change the way we do it. Mm-hmm. It, it led to a decades-long shift. So I'm wondering if this is going to lead to some kind of decades-long shift in the way companies treat employees. It's a really interesting observation. I, I hadn't made that connection, but you might be right. We might be seeing a very long shift where uh, employees, uh, by nature of being able to demand that they work from home, being able to ask for more freedom, by being able to um, ask for better wages and benefits, will have more power for longer. And it could last for a very long time because the 1990s were characterized by the fall of the Berlin Wall, which brought a lot of talented tech workers from the former Soviet Union onto the market. We also saw China enter into the manufacturing space and all those low cost Mm -hmm. laborers entering into the market. But both that influx, both of those influxes of cheap labor have now disappeared. Right. So it looks as if it's, it's a secular trend as opposed to something that's a COVID blimp or COVID change. But shifting gears a little bit, right? So thinking through the economic reasons why this is happening, what do the good leaders do in this situation to connect with employees, keep employees, bring out the best of employees? What are they doing well? Well, what we've realized is that employees are not leaving in the great resignation because of comp or benefits. Yes. They're, they're, they're fleeing from toxic work cultures, right? They're fleeing from bad bosses, frankly. Yeah. And the best leaders, the best employers out there are investing in new leadership programs. They are training their leaders to be better, to be more compassionate, to be uh, more human, right? They're developing new programs for coaching and training that elevate the entire organization. And by helping people understand that the employer actually cares about the employee's personal and mental well-being, that is one of the things that makes people stay because it's so different than how they felt for the last 10 years. Maybe it's an incorrect assumption, but let me lay it out here, right? So you have a situation where people quit their relationships personally because they realize it's too much. Mm-hmm. Then they're quitting bad relationships with their bosses. It's almost as if it's not just a response to their workplace, but it's a change in what people have chosen to value. I think you're right. People have begun to realize that they don't have to accept mediocrity in their relationship. I like that. Yes. They don't have to accept mediocrity in their employment. They don't have to accept mediocrity in their living situation. People are moving all over the place. They say, you know what? I don't want to live in a studio apartment in New York City anymore. I would rather live by a beach 
in North Carolina or in California, and I'll do the same job from there. And I'll have a better quality of life and make just as much money. You know, people are optimizing. I think that's as, as sad and hard as the last two years have been for millions of people and millions of families around the world. It's also been a reckoning for a lot of people when they've realized I have more options than I gave myself credit for. And they're starting to take advantage of those options. Yeah. I mean, if I was a smart leader and I hope I am, I would like (laughs) to see that my people are going through this major psychological change. It's really Mm -hmm. hard for them. It's new for them. It's not just work driven. It's also personal. How can I help them as opposed to thinking this is just about me and they're not happy about me. It seems that they want greater change in their life. Yeah. And I don't think many leaders are thinking in that way. They all they see it as how do I get this person to work and generate so much return for what I'm paying them, right? It's almost a very functional view of leadership. That's right. It's an extractive view of leadership. An extractive view, I like that. And you know, extraction. How can I get more labor out of every unit of employee? Right. And, you know, the better leaders now are thinking of themselves more as gardeners. What does this employee need to blossom? What does my team need to feel safe, to feel committed, to feel creative? And it's those employers who walk around the, you know, they, they, they walk the floor of their office or they talk to people over Zoom like a gardener moves through a garden and observes the different flowers and say, well, this one needs a little more light. This one needs a little more water. This one needs some fertilizer as opposed to, you know, putting your flowers on a performance improvement plan. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, what you say is a very insightful point and I unpack it because, you know, like you, if you've been long enough in business, you notice that every decade goes through certain trends. Mm -hmm. It was a period when most CEOs that were being sought were people who had M&A experience because American companies were going international, buying companies and so on. And it seems that right now, that one common characteristic of leadership is not about the superstar CEO who gets all the attention, but it's almost someone who works behind the scenes to get the most from the employees. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Yes. It's, it's the leader who focuses on empowering and holding up employees those are the ones who are succeeding right now. Um, I, you know, Jack Welch is... is um, oh, I knew you'd bring up Jack Welch. I knew <laughs> Jack everyone Welch brings is, up Jack Welch. <laughs> but he's, he's a good example. For, yeah, he was the first like superstar CEO, right? Yeah. And uh, my dear friend, David Gels just wrote a book about how uh, Jack Welch, actually, um, if we think about his true legacy, um, he can be uh, thought of as you know, the man who single-handedly broke capitalism in that um, uh, he was so focused on short-term performance that he eradicated the culture uh, at GE um, and his, um, his acolytes, the people who followed him and learned from him, went on to lead companies like Boeing and others. 3M, where, right? Where this, you know, what used to be a culture of quality engineering turned into a culture of hitting the earnings numbers and pleasing Wall Street. And we've seen that take over. Sorry, Edward, is that book yeah. out at the moment? That book is out and it is called The, the Man Who Broke Capitalism, I believe. I've got it It's written here. by your friend. Yes, David Gels. Okay, Gels. I'm definitely going to try to get him onto the G-E-L-L-E-S. show. G-E-L-L-E-S. 
for your I'm going to try yeah. to get him under the show. I think it'd be good to have him talk about oh, it. He's, he's fabulous. He's, he writes for the New York Times. He wrote oh, the corner fantastic. office. Oh, we'll, we'll reach out to him. Thank you for that. But continue sure. with this hypothesis, yeah, because it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, the, the idea being, you know, for the last 40 or 50 years, we've seen this shift away from companies being a place where employees could feel safe and creative and could build a career and they could, you know, if they wanted to spend their entire lives working yeah. for one company and they felt like it was, they were part of a family, right? We, we have a loyalty problem right now in Silicon Valley and other companies. I think the, what, from what I read recently is the average tenure for an employee right now is 18 months. Wow. That's low, right? That's very low. How does anyone, how does any company where the average employee only stays for 18 months, how do they have any institutional knowledge? How do they have any consistency, any um, continuity in relationships with in, from employee to customer? Yes. Right? And uh, employees feel like they can just bounce around because if the employer is going to treat us just as a resource, we're going to treat them just as a paycheck. Yeah. And what we're seeing now is some companies, um, uh, gratefully, a lot of the companies we work with are starting to see much higher retention. Uh, they're not losing employees in the great resignation. People, um, they've only lost, one of our uh, companies has only lost, I think, in five years, five employees have quit. Wow. Uh, and this is a company with 300 employees, right? And um, what that means and what they're doing is, they're creating a culture that people want to stick around. They're creating a, an atmosphere where people feel seen, they feel appreciated, they feel heard. And that is really the currency of the new economy, I believe. The, <clears throat> the employer who can help someone want to say, stay for much more than a paycheck, those are the ones who are going to win in the next 10, 15 years. Do you feel that American companies are at the forefront of this style of leadership, or is it something where we are not at the forefront, but we may be adopting techniques that are more developed in places like Sweden and Finland? I don't know if that's the case. I want to find out. Hmm. A great question. I, I don't have the data to support that, but I do see the change happening here in New York and San Francisco and LA. Um, where leaders are focused much more on being compassionate and yeah. on helping people feel safe. Um, I wish I had more data to answer that. That's uh, for your second company in, in Sweden. Second Finland, second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so switching back to the behaviors, right? I was reading uh, the Financial Times this morning, and I noticed that Tesla is calling back employees to work full-time at the office. And I saw another bank did that about a week ago, and another bank and another large company. Do you feel that this idea of making people feel, I like the word you use, but they don't have to hide at the office. Do you think that if we move into a recessionary environment, that change in leadership behavior to appreciate employees more will be able to, to still be in place through a recession or will it die down? I think that it has to stay in place during a recession because it is during a recession when people feel most uncertainty and when people feel uncertainty, they're triggered into fear. Yeah. And when they feel fear, they are likely to get into squabbles. They're likely to get um, political. They're likely to feel less creative. 
uh, they're likely to be looking around for new jobs. So the smarter leaders right now will be circling the wagons and making people feel like whatever's happening out there, you're safe in here. I actually like that. You said something very insightful and unpack it for the audience. You mentioned that people start bickering, becoming political if they feel unsafe. I've never actually thought about that before. Why yeah. do employees act up? Yeah, yeah 90% of the problems uh, that employers experience with bad behavior in the workplace has to do with uh, employees feeling fearful, that they, f- they feel like they need to curry favor. They yeah. feel like they need to hoard resources. They feel like they need to take credit because that credit is not given because the employer is not um, doling out praise sufficiently. Uh, and it, it all starts at the top, right? If yeah. you have an employer who uh, makes people feel appreciated, who shares a vision and uh, get behind and get excited by, an employer who um, shares when he or she feels vulnerable um, and um, makes employees feel like having emotions at the office is okay. What you said should be so obvious, yeah. but it's not obvious because if you, if you extrapolate not. this from a business relationship to a personal relationship, I mean, when does your girlfriend throw a clock at you when she's unhappy, right? Guys or girls, I'm using a girl example here, but sure. people only act up when they have a reason to act up. Right. When they feel like exactly. things are unclear or uncertain, right? When people feel clarity and certainty in a relationship, things go well, things go smoothly. But when there's uncertainty, uh, people start squabbling. They start fighting over who did the dishes or not, or didn't yeah. do the dishes, right? We start inventing things to fight about because there's an underlying tension that's not being addressed. And that yeah. underlying tension is, are we gonna be okay as a company? Is my paycheck gonna come? Um, does my boss think I did a good job or not? And for some reason, um, we, uh, some companies that we've worked with over the years, they believe that giving out too much praise is demotivating to employees. They think that employees need to feel just a, you know, like on, on, the, on the verge of being, you know, uh, very fearful. Yes. Now, a little bit of fear in a system is good. Yeah. Studies have found that a little yes. bit of fear is motivating. It gets people feeling sharp and like on the edge of their seat. It's like having a, having a good competitor, right? It rallies people like, let's go. Having too much fear in a system leads to shutdown. It leads to squabbling. It leads to toxic behavior. So it's really the job of the employer, of the leader to moderate, to, to make sure people feel enough heat that they get up out of their seats and are excited to work and are not, they're not bored, yeah. um, but not so much fear that they just shut down. The way you word it, it makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, we use the word relationship with your manager or boss, but we don't understand it really is a relationship. Oh, and it's yeah. a relationship that determines your retirement, your income, the kind of life you can have. But largely for a long time, it's been a very one-sided relationship where one party has almost all of the power. Mm-hmm. And that obviously leads to situations where there's tension, there's angst, there's anxiety, and so on. I mean, the way you articulated it, it would be nice if more leaders thought about it that way. Yeah. They're not managing a department of 100 people. They have 100 relationships. They really do. They really do. And in our work, 
we help leaders treat them as individuals. That's really the focus our, of, of our work yes. um, as coaches is helping leaders understand that every individual has a different set of needs. Every individual has their own fears. They have their own gifts. They have their own dreams for themselves. And it might sound uh, not scalable to treat everyone as an, as an individual. We want to just standardize and uh, create um, you know, one policy for everyone. But what that does is it makes people feel like, well, if I'm not treated as an individual, there's no reason for me to act as an individual, right? Uh, that might work in the military. You want everyone to get in line and just follow orders. Yeah. But that doesn't work in the modern economy when with knowledge workers, you're really relying on people to be problem solvers. You're relying on people to um, <clears throat> help you see around corners as an organization. If they don't feel like they're being treated as individuals, they're not gonna feel motivated to yeah. solve a problem that they see. They're not going to tell you when they s smell smoke. So you're always going to be putting out fires. It's a good example. Even with the military today, it's not about everyone falling in line. Military doctrine now calls for units at the front line to make decisions on their own mm -hmm. and pull in support from leaders, as opposed to some commander barking orders into the phone. But when you talk about um, treating employees as individuals, I remember when we first started off working with customers and customer segmentation, they all told us it's impossible to treat customers as individuals, which was true at the time when technology was, you know, based off mainframe. And, but then as we moved to digital, AI, and so on, and you had systems and processes to look at what individuals are doing, recommend things to them uniquely. Now everyone talks about treating customers as individuals. But I never had any conversation with any leader in the entire world where they spoke about treating employees as individuals. Isn't that amazing? As you said, with all of the access to data about customers, we know a lot more about our employees than we do our customers. So there's no reason we can't be treating them, them as individuals. I mean, if you go into the Financial Times, there's all this talk about digital and you have all these apps and you can see if a customer goes onto the Disney side, this is where they went before, this is where they walked, this is what they bought. You could cross sell something to them. But why don't we have those discussions about employees? I've never seen that discussion in any business newspaper about, okay, we know what our employees are doing. We know where they come from. We know where they work. We know their kids are going through this at school. We have all this data in our mainframe. It shouldn't be too hard to figure out what they need, right? It really should not be. And the, I think the problem is it is, has been seen for a long time as taboo to get to know your employees too much. To ask them. Yes, personal. that is true. Right? That is actually true. Like, I'm not supposed to know anything about your personal life aside from maybe the name of your wife and your kids. Yes. And that's about it, right? Just come to the office, do your job. I'll do my job and we can go home and have our private lives. But that is a myth, especially in today's economy when most people are working from home, if not full time, at least part time. Right. We spent the last two years peering into people's bedrooms and, and, and living rooms through Zoom. Uh, sorry, not to sound creepy. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, suddenly we know that they have good or bad taste in decor. Right. They know we know that they are messy or they are they are clean. And it's actually by knowing people more, uh, by knowing people well, that we're able to understand them as human beings. If we understand them as human beings, we can motivate them as individuals. We can give them the projects that they will be uniquely exceptional at, as opposed to just dole out work indiscriminately to employee number 527.
Yeah, it's interesting you, you would say that because I'm a person who never likes to attend any meetings ever anywhere in the world. I'll call in by audio and I'll put it on mute and the rest of the team will speak. But yeah. during COVID, I had to attend some Zoom meetings. And let me tell you something, as you said very rightly, to see someone in their home, to see the kind of things they have to deal with, to see what is their wealth profile, to see how they live, it completely changed my perception of my team. Absolutely. I could really Absolutely. understand what they go through when I can see that someone in the background is making lunch because they don't have a big enough house to separate the activities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by knowing people more personally as humans, understanding who they are, we cannot help but have empathy for them. And when we have empathy, empathy is the human characteristic that draws us together, that creates bonds. And it's those bonds that create loyalty, that creates retention. It's this whole um, powerful system that gets kicked into place. I think yeah. that, you know, as we said, over the last 20, 30 years, employees have begun to feel like cogs in a machine. It ties back to what you said earlier. When you have a Zoom call that's broadcasting your entire house, there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. yeah. And when we you have don't have this fear of hiding, you can focus on your work. Yeah, yeah. So in some sense... If employees are done hiding, then it's up to em employers to really see and understand who they are. Yeah, I remember I was in a Zoom call once with someone for work and this lady's son came and, and wanted food. And I think to myself, if this had been in a normal work situation, she would be messing us and telling us she had to go home for an emergency and we'd be wondering, what is it? Is it a real emergency? But right. with Zoom, you can actually see her life. There's no judgment. Right, right. And isn't it darling to see uh, a colleague's children or a and their dogs, pet. actually, their dogs. As well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's created so many moments of levity in a very heavy time. And do you notice how the tone of our discussion has changed here? We are talking about leadership, but we're talking about understanding people. Yeah. We're not talking about how do we get their output out? How do we teach them skills? No, it's about we understand this person. We can see what their life is like. How can we help them? That's exactly right. That's what we call leading with heart. You've got an MBF senior background from Wharton, but you were not taught any of this at Wharton. I know that for a fact. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't teach this at business school. They don't teach this at business school. They don't even teach leadership effectively. In fact, I'm pretty sure leadership, you had some courses on leadership. In fact, I know some of your professors, but they're not the most popular electives. No, they're not. And, and what they teach in the leadership courses is like, we did a case study of like this, this person yeah. who was hiking Tighten in the Himalayas. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like they have these crazy um, cases, case studies that really have nothing to do with normal life. When leadership is really about understanding how people live and what they need to feel excited and motivated and what gifts they can bring to bear. Right. A lot of people are out there. They've got a talents that are yes. completely unexplored because no one ever invited them. No one ever asked the question. The thing is, if you think about leadership the way it's taught today, it still has that World War II imprint of we are fighting a war, we have a limited supply, unlimited requests, how do we allocate resources? And all these uh, case studies in business school is about a leader trying to figure out how to allocate resources. But it's never about how do I deal with employees? It's almost never that situation. In fact, when it is about dealing with some emotional issue with an employee, it's not in the leadership course. It's somewhere else. 
Probably in the negotiation course. <laughs> yeah, in the negotiation course. And I was talking to the guys from Stanford and they have a course called Touchy Feely. I mean, leadership yeah, is called Touchy Feely even today. Yeah. And the, I actually think the fact that Stanford calls that, I mean, it, it's not formally called the Touchy Feely course, yeah. but the fact that people call it the Touchy Feely course is, uh, does it a great disservice to the entire field. It means that people and, don't know what leadership is. Yeah. Well, they think it's, when you say touchy-feely, it is inherently uh, pejorative. Yeah, it's meant to be a slight. It's casting slight. shade as the TikTok generation would say. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to, this is the course about how to be a human being. This is a course about how to have honest conversations. This is a course about how to be vulnerable and develop real rich relationships at the office. That's the kind of course I would want to take, not touchy-feely. Yeah, it's the same thing, but it's the way it's worded. Exactly. Because language matters, right? Language leads to changes in our chemistry, in our body language, and so on. And if you call something touchy-feely, you already decided it's not worth your time. Yeah. It was called touchy-feely by someone who was very resistant to the content and was, uh, as you said, casting shade. Yeah. Casting shade. So we, we can speak the millennial <laughs> or the general language of the kids. Oh, you've got kids. Okay. Then that makes sense. So before we wrap up, I have a, just a few staging points there. Do you feel that these concepts apply across cultures, even though they may be practiced in different ways? Or do I you feel they that do. they are more relevant to some cultures? I think some cultures are more receptive to these concepts than Receptive, others. okay. Right? I think all human beings like to feel seen and heard and loved. Yes. Everyone loves that. I think it is a, it is a human constant. It's just part of the human condition, but whether or not they feel that is culturally relevant or allowed, I think obviously depends on the culture. Um, here in, in the United States, we can even see regionally um, that uh, individuals are more receptive to feeling, to showing up to work as themselves um, in some parts of the country as opposed to others. Um, and I imagine that you know, as many of your listeners are around the world, across Asia, every country will have its own different set of rules, quote unquote, as to yes. how we're supposed to show up at the office. And I'd be interested to hear from some of your um, listeners how that might be changing, how COVID has changed, um, how people are showing up in China and Singapore and Korea and Japan in terms of, in India, and in terms of has it softened? Yeah. Are people having more honest conversations now? Or has it actually forced us to be even more um, shy about who we really are? Yeah. Well, what you said makes sense. It's every leader should lead with heart everywhere in the world, but the mechanism to do it will be different because cultures are different. That's right. Absolutely. Some cultures, you, know, you can't look people in the eye. It's taboo to sit down and talk with people about their personal lives, but there'll be other ways to connect with someone, other ways to show them that you care about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Edward, thank you so much for being on the call. Actually, thank you. It's basically. really been a pleasure. That's one of the best conversations I've had this year. Thank you so much. Hopefully we'll have you back on the show soon. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great evening. Ciao. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, 
and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.